This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. <laughs> and I'm Eric Shaw. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Forgetting your lines today, Eric Shaw Quinn? Do we need to no, do more rehearsal? You just sounded so serious. Record? I'm Christopher Rice. It was like, lay below. It was like, it's, evening it's very news. serious. It's very, very serious. Very serious. It's no, very it's not. serious. It's Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving. It's our special. But it's a double stuffed special episode of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. It's two different Thanksgiving-themed murders in one episode, and that makes this very, very, very serious, as evidenced by the ridiculously irreverent title, Double Stuffed. So, yeah, that's, um, if you're going let's, let's for very get, serious, that may not have been your best choice. Yeah, I, I think that's probably... I'm seeing that now, that I'm reading all of that aloud. Um, housekeeping so notes. name very serious. Christopher Rice. Absolutely. I try to I try to be serious, but I try to keep my voice from going up into my nose like this. Because that's what usually happens when I get tired. And sometimes when I'm recording these episodes with you, I get tired because we talk about very weighty and serious and substantial things. Like a few episodes ago, you brought up Plato or some sort of platonic dialogue or Socratic dialogue. Something from your philosophy degree reared its the youth fantastically yeah. sophisticated head and, and I'm still sort of trying to recover because I'm just a basic pop culture idiot who, who you know, just I, I'm just trying to be serious is what I'm saying. I'm trying to be a okay. legitimate, so serious podcaster. This is, it's Thanksgiving, so we're celebrating our abundance and our blessings, so I want you to yeah, fuck that on, on your <laughs> gifts. You know what? Name calling, uh, even name calling yourself, is not a component of being thankful and grateful at uh, at the holiday. It's called negative self talk, and it's how I spend Thanksgiving and most other holidays. No, I have Christopher's just tough you. love Thanksgiving tonight. Tough. On TDPS presents. Thanksgiving now with self flagellation here at the right. TDPS network. All right, let me, let me do Thanksgiving. Let me do this because we do have two episodes. This is normally when we do Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. Normally, as if it's a normal thing, what we do. Nothing um, about we what both, we do is normal. Nothing. We both discuss the same episode. Um, this time, we're each serving up a separate episode. We went off into our respective corners, as we often do on our series, What's Science or What's Spooky? And we each watched an episode, and we're going to bring it back. And part of the reason we did this is because there are a lot of Thanksgiving-themed true crime episodes. Like, we did a search on Amazon Fire, and we hit, like, I don't know, six or seven different and all relating to different crimes, it looked like. Not all about the same, like, story, Thanksgiving, homicide. These were all 
A lot of cases, just family members who had had enough. Or who knows? That's a mystery, and we're going to see who's had enough. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's tough at the holidays. I've had a family for a number of years now, and I'm willing to say that it's a challenging time of the year under the best of circumstances. (laughs) And this particular holiday season is more challenging than most, so... Yeah, uh, it's uh, it, it's ugly out there. So uh, fasten well, your seatbelts and uh, <laughs> loosen your pants belts, and uh, let's uh, have yeah. a, a true crime TV club Thanksgiving celebration, right? Uh huh. Sure, and we should celebrate this as we discussed on our last episode. Some people's uh, pandemic uh, holidays are different than they would be in previous years. People are not actually getting together at quite the same level in the quite the same way as they did in previous holiday seasons, and maybe that will cut down a little bit on the rash Thanksgiving homicides that seem to populate a lot of the true crime specials that we talk and about. And maybe Who knows? these these um, horrific tales will make you more grateful that you didn't get to see your family this year, because, yeah. you know, you, who knew that it was the crapshoot that, that it was? Absolutely. Okay, one one housekeeping note. Uh, ever since you called me out on doing that, I realize now when I'm doing it, when I'm trying to move us on to something else, and I say absolutely as if I've been listening to you intently, and really I've just been looking at my show notes, which are overly detailed. Anyway, um, that was not an apology, by the way. I do what I need to do to keep this show on the rails. Okay. Have you have That's you it. had um, uh, Godiva chocolate truffles? Yes, during... I did. I had two Godiva chocolate truffles. Did you I... cheat? You saw me on Facetime have two I truffles. I didn't. I did not. That was just. I am simply judging by the the uh, the pace of your presentation and the timbre of your voice. You the, seem to uh, be. Yeah, you're going like a, a little bit faster. Than, I was like, wow. Truffle really, voice. He is really excited about this episode. And then it was like, oh, no, he's had uh, Godiva chocolate truffles. That's what I'm up against this time. Well, I got a Diet Coke here, so I'll see you truffles. All right, I'll see. Well, I plan while you're presenting the episode you watched, I plan to take a short nap because my sugar crash should be happening right around then. So we'll see how that plays once we once we listen that to the finished files. great. Uh, a housekeeping note, we want to uh, thank everybody who sent in information or who has interacted with our posts about a 30-year-old unsolved homicide. That would be the murder of William Arnold Newton here in Los Angeles, which we talked about on episodes 37 and 48. And on episode 48, we presented new information, which we got as a result of an email address that we've established devoted to tips and recollections of the crime and its victim. That address is William Newton, two L's and William, investigation at gmail.com. And you can also communicate with us about that case on the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page. TDPS is stands for the Dinner Party Show. That's why we're the TDPS Network. And we will have an update because we have already received new information since our last episode. And before the end of the calendar year, we hope to update you on where that stands, given that we recently passed the 30th anniversary of the case going unsolved. So from one true crime to another. Right. Um, we Two episodes up being served up on today's episode. Eric will be discussing Homicide for the Holidays, entitled A Deadly Thanksgiving, and that is season one, episode one. 
I'll be discussing an episode of Murder Comes to Town entitled Who Killed Thanksgiving? That's season two, episode three. You are absolutely under no obligation or pressure whatsoever to watch these episodes in advance because our role here, our goal, our objective, if you will, is to serve it up for you in such searing, scathing detail that you will walk away from our podcast feeling as if you actually have watched and harshly judged the episode under discussion. Having you see what I mean? Those, yeah. Can you hear the? Uh, can you hear those those truffles in his voice now that I've said? Once I've said truffles, it, you can't not you cannot unhear it. Truffles make me feel more radio. Like I feel radio-y. I feel like I should be I, giving the yeah, weather report. Absolutely, you're just you are on it. It's I happening. Am. They are they are your uh, your episode secret, your Thanksgiving secret. So anyway, glad you have Godiva chocolate, chocolate truffles. You're a very lucky boy, and um. Very much looking forward to your episode. Are you going to start out with? Oh uh, no, no, no! You're going first. I'm taking my nap now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a nap now and ask you. And I oh, have, a, I, th- I have some automated questions set up. I figured your su- sugar crash would be coming later in the show, so you might actually hear some of this if we, if we, uh, if we start now. But you know. <laughs> I, is, is this it, your way of saying that you you don't want to go first? Like, no, it's I'm happy to, to go first. I don't ever mind. You go first. Um, but uh, yeah, it uh, it uh, it was just my question because we hadn't discussed it before we started recording the show because yeah. that's how we like to do things here is try and make it sound like we planned it this way. We meant yeah, to do absolutely. that. That was actually absolutely. what we were originally going to call the show. We meant to, we do, meant that to do that with Christopher and Eric, and then we decided that was a little too on the nose. Um, too on the nose. Okay. So um, it's time to uh, take us to uh, a Thanksgiving long ago and far away, uh, <laughs> November 26, 2009, in uh, beautiful Jupiter, Florida. Oh, dear. G- Jim and Muriel Sitton. And their daughter, Michaela, Michaela, um, Muriel's mother and father, Ramond and Tony Joseph, Muriel's twin cousins, Clara and Lisa, their brother, Paul, and their parents, as well as Carla's husband. Carla was pregnant and a dinner for 16 was planned uh, for Thanksgiving at 5 p.m. at Jim and Muriel's house that Mm -hmm. day. It was a huge success. Everybody ate dinner and there was a big family sing along and they were, it was, you know, Florida. So they were inside and outside. They were on the patio. It was lovely and a beautiful event. And everybody had a wonderful time. And by 10 o'clock, little six-year-old Michaela was exhausted and uh, her mom took her up to bed and tucked her in and, uh, with visions of uh, stuffing and leftovers dancing in her head. She joined everyone else in the kitchen where they were packing up uh, and uh, putting the food away and all of the leftovers back into the refrigerator. Um, When at about 10 PM, the shooting started. Oh my God. They were all in the kitchen uh, and they described. They, they said it just began. They didn't know where the shots were coming from. The first person shot was Carla. Um, she the she was standing next to Jim, uh, the host, and uh, 
He said she went down like the World Trade Center on 9-11. He said he'd never seen anything like it. She didn't fall. He said she just went straight down. Mm -hmm. Um, By 9-15, the calls were coming in uh, to uh, 9-1-1. Everybody was... You know, it was a small town, Florida. Everybody was sort of mm-hmm. wrapping up for the day. Uh, Chief Frank Kizaro, Kizaro, maybe, um, and crime, cedar to, crime scene investigator Teresa Bryant were called into the scene. Frank said he was just climbing into bed at the end of a long day, but it was such a big event. It was, you know, big shooting, and they didn't know if the killer, the shooter was still in the house. They didn't know what was going on. At the house, it was chaos. People mm. ran for cover. People were hiding in the laundry room. People ran screaming oh out God. of the building. Um, Muriel's mother, Ramond, had been shot and killed execution style. Carla mm. Marriage had been shot in the head and, as I said, and killed by somebody outside the kitchen. She went down like the... Um, proverbial collapsing building. She was probably the first one shot. Her twin sister, Lisa was shot in the house and killed as she was trying to escape from the building and dies on the patio. There was blood all over the walls. There was, I mean, it was a catastrophe. There were casings on the floor that indicated a 40 caliber semi-automatic weapon was in use, though there were no signs of the weapon. Um, Six-year-old Michaela was shot in her bed as the survivors scattered. Muriel starts screaming that they have to get her daughter out of the house, and they see someone pass an upstairs window and hear the gunshots, and she loses it. Her husband, Jim, goes tearing into the house through the front door, which he finds standing open, Um but he rushes upstairs anyway, and it's too late. The daughter has been shot, but she is still alive, and he holds oh out hope. The entire city goes on alert because they don't know who the hell did this or who else might be at risk. Is this just some lunatic killing people? They have no idea. Um, Daphne Durrett, a reporter with the Palm Beach Post, tells us that a neighbor has seen a Hispanic man in a white shirt walking calmly away from the crime scene, just came out the door and walked off down the street like no big deal. Um, But no one in the house saw a shooter at all. They were all too busy dodging the hail of bullets to do anything. Um, So they're not really much help as the police began arriving and cordoning off the scene. They said people were jumping out of the bushes as they were approaching Mm the house because they were hiding in the bushes because they didn't know what, and they scared the hell out of the police. And it was like I say, a small town police force. So they were not really prepared for it. Um, they, they're all, you know, cordoned off in hell for questioning. And Jim and Muriel get the news that six year old Michaela has died from the oh, police no. chaplain, having never been able to leave the crime scene. And they're just a complete basket case. Um, mm-hmm. Muriel's father, Tony, emerges from the house where he's been hiding. He is unharmed and he says he knows who did it. Oh, my God. He says that he was trying to help his wife, Armand, when the killer approached and put the gun, held the gun to his forehead and pulls the trigger. But the gun jammed. 
Hmm. He pleads with the shooter and says, Paul, don't. Because the shooter is Paul, Lisa and Carla's brother. Oh, my God. A man who has been at the table with everybody, at the sing-along, and at the house the entire time. Oh, my God. It's unclear where in the time frame all of the, the this happens between he and Paul, but he is not uncertain. He has it is definitely them. Um, mm-hmm. It is definitely him. I I guess it's after he shot Michaela, but I, I honestly don't. It's not really clear when Tony um, uh, was had his encounter with Paul, but he's able to identify the shooter. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. So, Eric, maybe I missed this, but what time of night is all of this happening? Oh, I'm sorry. I said right at the top, 10 p.m. 10 p.m. Okay, I did that's miss it. When, Got it. That's when they, they really, the, the 911 calls began at 10.15, so mm-hmm. that's more or less. It was late. They'd already, put, they'd already put Michaela to bed. She came down right. to join them, and the shooting started. So And then the calls started coming in at 10.15, so they're... Well, they don't have an exact moment. 10 p.m. Right. is when they think that okay. the, the carnage actually began. Mm-hmm. So it's still the middle of the night. They're all gathered God. there, and um, they've discovered that it was actually a member of their family. Um, mm-hmm. It would have been a cousin, I think, to um, to Muriel um, was at the table. The six-year-old I, child, yeah. No, the six-year-old child is Michaela. He would have been her Ah. second cousin. He's the mother's cousin. Carla and um, Lisa are twin sisters, and their brother Paul um, was the shooter. Their parents were also there, but they are unharmed. Mm -hmm. Um, As Tony describes the scene when he's describing... The, the horrific moment when Paul attempts to kill him and the, the gun jams is the only reason he's still alive. Um, Paul leaves Tony holding his dead wife. He steps over his sister's body on the patio as he's departing, turns back to Tony and says, I've been waiting 20 years to do this. Oh, my it's, God. It's the only thing he said the entire time. And then he's gone. Oh so word God. goes out and a manhunt begins in pursuit of Paul and his blue Toyota Camry. Um, They do a quick interview with um, Assistant Chief Deputy U.S. Marshal Manny Puri, I guess it is, Mm -hmm. P-U-R-I, who has joined the chase. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though with Tony's eyewitness testimony, there is still concern that Paul might still be on the rampage and kill other people. So they're very much concerned about his continuing threat to other people. If he did this Mm -hmm. to his family so brutally, 
what chance would a stranger stand um, right. against this this maniac? Um, mm-hmm. The Chief Inspector Deputy U.S. Marshal um, Thaddeus Lee um, in Miami is contacted, and he goes to Paul's condo there to see if he just simply returned home. He's mm-hmm. not there, but they have a warrant and discover that Paul has clearly been planning this event. He's withdrawn large sums of money from his bank account. He's Jesus. bought multiple firearms. He has also bought a sniper rifle with a scope oh on it that he's been training on, which really concerns the authorities. So they're just completely flipped out, right? They're concerned about continuing threat to the family and to Mm -hmm. the general public. And they have no idea where he's gone or what he's been because he's moving. He's all of the cash he's withdrawn. There's no credit card trail or any other way to trace him. So he didn't use the sniper rifle during the shooting at the house, right? That they actually find it in his home. He, they, did not. They found evidence that he bought it. He he oh, bought the oh sniper God. rifle. They bought the so that's why they're concerned because he still has the sure. sniper rifle. He, he bought the it, yeah. the nine millimeter uh, the forty whatever the automatic mm-hmm. the semi automatic handgun which he did most of the killings with. But that one jammed and mm-hmm. it was unclear the way they staged it. the The staging was not. Terrible. It was reasonable. They were reasonable facsimiles of the people. There was no re. They didn't talk at all. They were just simply enacting different actions that were taking place mm-hmm. during the the course mm-hmm. of them, and then being the corpses lying on the floor. But they stage him like it was like I was saying. I was unclear on the timeline. It seemed like he left the premises after he tried to kill the grandfather. Right, okay. the gun to the head, the gun jammed moment. But the way they staged that, the gun that jammed was the automatic. Mm-hmm. But in the but the way they also staged it was that they, he then went upstairs with the revolver because he bought an, a semi-automatic and a revolver, and he went upstairs mm-hmm. and killed the daughter with the revolver. But that doesn't really track for me. Jesus Christ! Uh, yeah, he shot the little six-year-old child three times in bed. Um, oh my yeah. God. Just okay. monstrous. It's okay. just a hideous Awful. event. So yeah. they bring in Dr. Stephen Alexander, a forensic psychologist, um, just to sort of talk us through, um, tell us that Paul is crazy, which seems, you know, like that's the technical term for it, the advanced mm-hmm. medical term. He never says crazy. He calls mm-hmm. him all kinds of things, um, narcissist and pathological um, uh, psychopath being. He's not certain, but he is pretty, you know, he is pretty... Uh, mm-hmm clear on what's on that Paul's problem. Paul was apparently kind of the golden child in the family uh, for whom everyone had high expectations. He was very popular in high school and a football star, but Mm. he begins having mental health issues as early as 18. I I sort of, my surmise was football head injury. Yeah. Traumatic brain injury. That's coming up more and more. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't talk about it. Okay. They talked about, um, narcissism, um, and who uh, could really blame them for that? Because he was yeah. very much clearly obsessed with the attention that was or was not paid to him. Uh, mm-hmm. Chief Kitsaro hires a forensic cleanup team to go through the family home. I guess this is subsequent, but not a lot. This, this really unfolds pretty swiftly as we mm-hmm. go along. But within a couple of days... Chief Kitsaro has hired a forensic cleanup team to go in and completely 
um, de-murder the house. Muriel mm. won't go back. She says she'll never go back into that, that house again. But her husband goes and sees that they, that it's pristine. There is no evidence of any, that any crime has ever happened there. And Michaela's room is, has been restored and Mm -hmm. it becomes clear to him that it's Michaela's home and a way of being still connected to that, to her. And so he pleads with Muriel and she returns home and agrees. They stay in the house. Um, Mm -hmm. But the police say they need to get curtains because of the sniper rifle and they put 24 hour protection on the house and the family. They even have they even have to have their uh, the memorial service uh, for Michaela and Muriel's mom at the local high school because the police say that that way they can guarantee the safety of the mourners. It was really like on lockdown. They searched all of the cars of all of the mourners who came to, because they don't know where he is or, you know, what's going on. What is it? Larger agendas. He didn't leave behind like a manifesto or a letter or anything. Did he? I mean, it was, no, they have no no clue what this is about. So, um, so the marriage is, the fam, the marriage, Paul's family, however, by this point is pretty much out of the picture in this particular story. I would be interested to hear from them, but none of them are interviewed. Jim and, mm-hmm. uh, Jim and Muriel are interviewed throughout all of this. Um, the marriages are not, they never even say whether or not the brother, the son-in-law, the Carla's husband who was in the hospital ever came out of his coma. They just kind of stopped talking about that side of the family. Once it becomes mm-hmm. clear that it was Paul, um, Muriel and Jim don't really want to celebrate Christmas. Um, mm. as you can well imagine, they're all still on edge. They don't know what's happened to Paul. It's the holidays, but like, you know, the hell with that. Um, and John Walsh of America's most wanted, Mm-hmm. Uh, joins the search and plans to air an episode in January. So very shortly mm-hmm. after the murders happen, the 26th of November, and they're planning to air an episode of America's Most Wanted um, in January. Mm-hmm. The authorities actually get a tip that is generated by the commercial for the episode coming up. So on Mm. January 2nd, the commercial airs saying there's going to be a show about um, this particular tragedy in Jupiter, Florida, right? We're now just over a month away. It's already on the air. The commercial generates a tip that from an innkeeper at the Edgewater Lodge in Key West or Long Key, Florida. Um, And it turns out to be that's that's where he is they he say didn't that he's staying, even leave the state of florida he's he's in at edgeware lodge in room Jesus. 14 the wow. marshal the marshals breach the room and before he can do anything they taser paul and take him into custody christ as they interview him it emerges that paul resented his sisters because they grew up to be the successes he could never be He he planned the crime for Thanksgiving because he wanted to make sure that no one was happy this year. Oh, my God. His parents, whom he spared intentionally, um, were spared so that they could suffer for not giving him the attention that he deserved. 
They had actually bought Paul a condo in Miami, which was the final straw for Paul because he felt rejected because they moved him out of their house and into the condo they bought for him in Miami. How brutal, right? And worst of all, Michaela had the misfortune to perform a musical number with Paul's twin sisters at Thanksgiving, showing how talented she was and earning her lots of attention, which didn't go to Paul, so he killed her too. Oh, fuck. Ah, <laughs> uh, I mean, just take a minute to take that on board. This uh. is, and, and we're like a month from the actual crime. And this is all, this is where we are. Uh, By October 2011, um, Mm -hmm. so a year later, a little over a year later, um, in a plea deal, uh, Paul is sentenced to consecutive life sentences with no chance of parole or appeal. They did this because his defense counsel was talking about doing an insanity offense defense and they Mm -hmm. did not want to risk any chance that he would not be convicted of the crime. So in exchange for taking the death penalty off the table, um, he gets consecutive life sentences with no chance of appeal or parole. So he will spend the rest of his life in prison and the Mm. authorities are pleased with this, but Michaela's family is not. They wanted Mm. him dead, which to Mm. me explains why Paul's family, the marriages, are not a part of this particular show. Because, Mm -hmm. as you might expect, this kind of had a chilling effect on the the Mm -hmm. relationship between the two families, which mm, I hope they've been able to mend. But, Mm -hmm. wow, that's a lot to ask. It does, however, become clear that a couple of kids later, that is... Jim and um, and Muriel have two more daughters and they realize in retrospect in raising their daughters that it was better that they just got on with it. Had there been a death penalty, they would have spent years reliving the horror and going through appeal after appeal. Mm-hmm. And what whereas with this, with no chance of appeal or parole, they were able to move on with their lives and have um, and have these two new children and began to have mm-hmm. some sort of closure and some sort of life that they, they never forgot Michaela. It appears they've continued to keep a room exactly as it was, which is mm, its own choice, you mm-hmm. know, but they've actually been able to move forward. Um, so I was kind of pleased for that. Paul is, you know, permanently in prison for the rest of his life. But as this sort of final note, I would like to point out that not once during the entire telecast, does anyone call attention to the fact that a man with a long, well-documented history of mental illness on serious medication has no trouble buying a revolver, a semi-automatic handgun, and a sniper rifle? Which, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm just saying. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think that people ought to have the right to keep and bear arms. But I think that they're, if you're just, if you have a really long history of serious mental health issues, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe you shouldn't. Or you're on a pause 
Until you have yeah, treatment. Or yeah. members of your family are going to be notified that you're trying to buy one and have to come in and participate in the, you know, some kind of safeguard in and around mm-hmm. it. It just seems like the least that one could possibly do. It's like, mm-hmm. hi, I'm, you know, somebody from a foreign country with a possible radicalized background, but I'm in America and so I can mm-hmm. buy a semi automatic weapon and mm-hmm. be a terrorist. I think the same thing would be true for somebody who is had um, major mental health um, issues. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's probably one of the most disturbing and upsetting stories we have ever covered. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Okay, so my turn up at uh, the, the serving plate, if you will, with an episode right? of Murder Comes to Town. Allow me to take you to the tiny town of Northport, Washington, which is just a few miles from the Canadian border, nestled along the banks of the Upper Columbia River. 200 or so people live in this town. It is truly a small town in every sense of the word. Oh my God, that is Mm -hmm. really small. Jupiter is a noteworthy little town, but 200 people, yeah. Northport, you said? Yes, Northport, Washington. Um, uh, As Thanksgiving weekend draws to a close, mother of four, Narlene Campton, is missing. And yes, that is Narlene, not Marlene. Autocorrect did not sabotage me on that note. Uh, Her son, Nathan, has been calling her home repeatedly and is unable to reach her. The same is true of her daughter, Sabrina Tippich, who was recently married. They call Narlene's best friend, Diane, and ask her to check on their mother. When Diane enters the little home with her husband, Roy, uh, she it is November 26, 2011, at 3.15 p.m., and they are immediately hit by the smell of what they describe as rotting trash permeating the house. Oh, no. It is coming from a bag of groceries that were left out on the kitchen table. It looks oh. as if they were about to be shelved and were not. They continue to explore the house, and that is when they discover blood in the hallway between the bathroom and the laundry room. And in the laundry room, they discover Narlene's body. She has been stabbed repeatedly. There is blood all over the floor, and the stab wounds indicate the possibility that she might have actually been tortured before she oh, was murdered. Oh, God. Detective James Caruso of the Stevens County Sheriff's Department is contacted by dispatch and sent to the scene. His uh, partner is Detective Mike Gilmore. Mike Gilmore is familiar with the name Campton because he's from the area and went to school with the children, Narlene's children, that is. They enter the crime scene, immediately notice the large volume of blood. They immediately notice that her body has been moved after she died. 
that she was in fact beaten and stabbed several times. There are ligature marks around her neck to indicate she was strangled as well. And again, Jesus. the nature of the wound suggests torture and an overall angry killing, which is how they fra- how the detectives old is, phrase was it. She's uh, around in her 50s, 60s. She's an older woman. Her children are grown. She lived alone. Uh, they trace the blood trail to the bathroom where they find evidence of high-pressure blood splatter suggesting that this was actually the scene of the attack. Now, this episode opened with a horror movie-style reenactment that showed Narlene entering the house alone, taking the groceries out on the counter, and then feeling a draft, going into the bathroom, seeing the open window, and then being stabbed. It was a little gratuitous and a little bit exploitive. And But my worst fear... Yeah. Alone in the house. Somebody's in the house and yeah. you don't know that they're there. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. Uh, while examining the rotting groceries on the kitchen table, they see a bloody fingerprint on a receipt by her wallet. So they, whoever did committed this crime did handle her wallet, but there's money left in the wallet, which undercuts the idea that this was a burglary. So the thief was after something very specific. They also find a prescription bottle for hydrocodone. But the bottle oh. is present, but I think it's empty. So red flag there. Uh, they notify the family, and at this point, the special takes us into Narlene's backstory. She was born and raised in an upper-middle-class family right here in Los Angeles, and they show several stock uh, images of our neighborhood, Eric Jacquin, here in West oh, Hollywood. Uh, there's no indication that she was actually from West Hollywood, but they show, you know, typical Los Angeles Hollywoody scenes and some intersections close to us. There's no place more typical in Los angeles than West Hollywood. Than where we live and where we are at any given time. She was a child of privilege. Her father was an attorney with his own law firm. In her early 20s, she left her sheltered life behind and entered the hippie movement. Her children recall living on a school bus, which was not their favorite thing. And then in the early 1980s, she moves to the little town of Northport, Washington, with the four children she has been raising all on her own. All the kids move away except for her youngest son, Azari, who they call AZ. Now, she's no longer a hippie. She's a born-again Christian. And her son, AZ, is well-known to the sheriff's department. He's at the top of their suspect list because he's got a pretty extensive criminal history with drugs. A more thorough search of the living room in her house reveals a cell phone wedged in the sofa cushions. It's long dead. They don't know if it's hers. They send it to the crime lab. Simultaneously, deputies canvass the area, and a neighbor tells them that she recalls seeing a strange vehicle in the area on Thanksgiving morning, a ratty, boxy, maroon SUV with what is described as a cardboard window in the back. I would say that's cardboard filling up a broken window, which would be the more accurate term for that, but they call it a cardboard window. Okay, but uh, it paints a vivid picture. Yeah. Word of the murder spreads all over town because it's a very small town. It reaches a man named Bo Wiley. Not far to spread with 200 uh, people. 200 people, right? He decides, Bo Wiley decides to stop by the house. He tells the detectives that he saw Narlene the day before Thanksgiving because he drove her into town to buy groceries and fill a prescription for hydrocodone for her painful joint condition. They return shortly after dark. He claims he went right home after he dropped her off. But he's the only one who knows that at the time of her murder, she was carrying a full bottle of hydrocodone. 
The detectives find Narlene's will, and surprise, it turns out she was about to inherit over a million dollars from a family trust, and if she died, it would pass down to her children. Why has no one heard from her son, AZ? This is starting to get suspicious. They bring Narlene's daughter, Sabrina, in to give them the entire story of their family, and Sabrina is one of those rare instances where her reenactress is far less attractive than she is in real life. Normally, it's the reverse. <laughs> wow. Um, that is, I've never seen that happen. Uh, AZ has a wife named Heather Dalkey, who has lived in the residence with Narlene. Both of them lived with Narlene for a while. Both of them were involved with drugs, and Narlene recently kicked both of them out. So, red flags oh. popping up all over the place. And this was after years of supporting him, and in the opinion of many people, being abused by him. It doesn't say if the abuse was physical or emotional or both. When detectives check the last known address for AZ, they find out, He's in the building. And why is he in the building? Because he's in the county jail and has been for a little while now. It turns out he's in there on a drug <laughs> charge, but they think it's possible, right? Small town, you know. They think it's possible he could have orchestrated the murder from prison. They go in to question him, but when they tell him of the murder, he seems genuinely distraught. He does admit that he and his wife often stole pills from Narlene, but they did it to get cash to buy meth. He says it's not him. He had nothing oh, well, to do then, with this murder. You know, right, that makes it better. All's forgiven, yes. So they set out in search of his wife, who is not in the county jail, Heather, and they track her to a dive bar on the other side of town where she sometimes works. They make that clear. Like, sometimes she's working there, sometimes she's just diving there. Uh, the detectives <laughs> say she is way too calm, that uh, they're telling her everything about the crime. She doesn't seem to have much of a reaction at all. She's cool as a cucumber. She says, I haven't seen my mother-in-law since Halloween. She denies having anything to do with the murder. And she gives them an alibi that says she was in Spokane for Thanksgiving with friends. And she begins to name the friends, which is a big mistake because none of these friends say they were in Spokane with Heather during Thanksgiving. In fact, they tell the detectives wow. Heather is lying Worst to her alibi ever. <laughs> yeah. Has she not seen, does she not own a television? Like, my I, God. I don't know. So then the detectives get a strange call, and this is really the only part of this case that isn't terribly predictable. They say that a woman has called the station claiming that her young son has been having recurring nightmares about a man with a knife stabbing a woman. And that these nightmares started ever since he returned home from spending Thanksgiving with his father. According to the child, his father and a female friend took him into a home where an older woman named Lena lives. The child describes physical attributes of Lena that roughly match Narlene's. And he describes the woman being killed and mentions she was strangled. The dad's name is Robert Cody Wirtz. Investigators have never heard the name before. They haven't been able to link him. And then they investigate him a little further. And it turns out he's a friend of Heather's because Heather is cheating on AZ with Robert Wirtz. The friend, mutual friends of theirs say that Robert was obsessed with Heather and would do anything for her. Oh they have un my. They have unidentified fingerprints from the scene and they try to find out if Wirtz is a match. He is. He is brought in by them. This is the best part of the story, okay? He's brought in by them. He's questioned, and they say, um, I, I was in the house. I did go there with Heather, but I went at Halloween. And they're like, so 
your your cell phone, the cell phone that we found in the sofa cushions, if it's yours, you're saying that you've been without a cell phone since Halloween. And he's like, yeah. And they're like, that that is just bullshit. That's just bullshit. They think there's no way that can be true. So they, they arrest him. He admits to everything I just described. When they confront him with his son's story, he says, yeah, we were in the house and I took him in. But like, we didn't murder anybody. And, uh, you know, I've been without my phone, blah, 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 blah. December 8th, 2011. They have a series so of errands. So he says he took the kid with him at, think, at Halloween or? Yes, he says he took the kid with him at Halloween, but that he hasn't been okay. in the house since. Okay. So Wirtz claims them that on the day of the murder, he had a bunch of errands he had to run and he gives them the schedule and they do that thing where the detectives drive the route and see if he could have done it in time. They also check security footage from all the places he claims to have been. And um, guess what? It all checks out. He shows up on all the cameras. The route is reasonable. He could have done it in time. Simultaneously, they send a forensic investigator who actually specializes in child interviews to interview the little boy who's been having the nightmares about the murder, and her report changes everything because she realizes that the boy's statements are inconsistent, details in his account have changed since he started telling the story, and he also admits that he and his dad recently watched some horror movies together, including Child's Play 3, which they refer to as Chucky 3, but I happen to know it's called Child's Play 3 because I'm a detective <laughs> like that. Expert. So they sit down and they watch the movie. The detectives watch the movie and they realize the details of the nightmare in the kid's testimony actually match the movie. Okay. On top of that, they have DNA samples from the crime scene. They don't match Robert Wirtz. And on top of that, and this is the part of the story that I cannot get over, even though it seems completely ridiculous, it it is his cell phone, and he did leave it there at Halloween, and he has been without a cell phone for almost a month because he left it in the sofa cushions at that woman's house. They can the crime lab does an analysis of the phone and confirms it hasn't been used since Halloween, which is like. Okay, whatever. I have some. I don't know. Cell phone behavior is 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 sometimes yeah, no, hard to understand. You can see from your phone records that that yeah. whether or not you'd placed a call since Halloween. Wow. So, not a big cell phone user. Not. I guess not. But I just love that the part of the story where the detectives were like, "Well, that's just bullshit." Turns out to be one of the few true things about any of this. Okay. They also check his vehicle registrations, and they don't find anything to link him to a maroon SUV. So 47 days after Narlene's murder, he's released. And that's very hard on the family. Months go by. June 2012 now, and the crime was in November 2011. They're still focused, the detectives, I mean, on the stolen hydrocodone. And they think that's kind of the key to this crime. AZ is now out of prison and he's on the streets. And when they track him down, it sounds like he's nice and high and suddenly very cooperative. So they start zeroing in on his other friends and they say, did you tell any of your other friends that Narlene was getting a prescription for hydrocodone? And he's like, oh, yeah, actually, I was. Uh, and I told this guy, Jeremy Bryant, and he's completely crazy and violent, which he decides to say now, almost a year after the crime. Uh, the detectives recognize the name Jeremy Bryant. An irresponsible criminal and drug addict. Who saw right. that coming? Uh, who saw that coming? The detectives know him. Uh, the Jeremy Bryant's a name that pops immediately on their mental screens. They know him because he's got a criminal background. He's got an extensive collection of knives, which they apparently also they're know about. They're mental screens? Yeah, they're mental screens. They're brains. I'm just trying to be metaphorical here, you know. 
They're not robot detectives. We haven't gone that far. I just hadn't heard that term before. Okay. Yeah. Um, They find Jeremy. He claims he was at a party the night of the murder. Now, if the reenactments are to be believed, the parties, Jeremy's idea of a party is more sort of our idea of a flop house or a drug den where nobody can get up off the sofa. Well, you know, one man's poison. Yeah. So they track him down to his home. They start asking him questions. He refuses to answer and says, I won't say anything else without a lawyer. But simultaneously, they figure out, guess who owns a maroon SUV with a broken window? I'm guessing with a cardboard window. Yeah. So they go to a notorious drug house outside of town. And inside, they find some barely coherent junkies who refuse to admit they know Jeremy. But unfortunately, Jeremy (laughs) gave these junkies as his alibi. So this is really like the, the moral of this story is if you're going to give a fake alibi, you need to really make sure that the other people are on board because this is the second instance of someone giving it up, being like, yeah, I was with her, I was with him, and then they talk to him and she's like, I don't know her. They like do a Mariah Carey on their ass. Yeah, this, so, is, this is why you, you're better off to live in a big city, I think, if you're going to be a so. criminal. Uh, uh, so um, a couple of them remember seeing Jeremy on the night of the murder, but much later, Brian, um, much later than Jeremy says he saw everybody and long after Narlene was murdered. So it's not a good alibi at all. And oh, by the way, he mentioned to one of them, he killed a lady up the hill and carved the mark of the devil on her. Oh. Yeah. So the county okay. crime lab analyzes the DNA samples that were taken from the scene, and it turns out they're Jeremy's. Even after hearing all this evidence, Jeremy refuses to confess. He says, put me in a jail cell. Two years after the murder, uh, on the, at the uh, time of Bryant's trial, Jeremy accepts a plea bargain of second-degree murder with a recommendation of 15 to 19 years. He accepts it. The family is furious. They wanted a death penalty case. Similar situation to the... It, it seems to be a Thanksgiving trend. If somebody kills your right. loved ones on Thanksgiving, you seem to want the death penalty. I'm not sure I have trouble understanding that. There's still no answer to why the beating was so savage or why the body was moved. But the narrator informs us that the murder of Narlene Campton will haunt the Thanksgivings of everyone in the little town on the river for years to come. And in an unfortunate coda on the entire episode, the Amazon autoplay feature cuts off one of Narlene's friends as she begins to quote some horrifying Bible verse about vengeance, and (laughs) then it moves on to playing the next episode before she can finish her sentence. So, unlike your story, I felt there were some major pieces missing from this one. Major. Like, there there was information that they either didn't have time to include... I, I there was I think there possibly was a theory or explanation of why the beating was so savage. Maybe it was possible Narlene and Jeremy knew each other through AZ or through the fact that they lived in a town with 200 people in it. I just felt like this was like an elliptical version of this story. Um, I don't but, know. My yeah. only thought would be maybe he thought she had more drugs and she he was trying to get her to tell him where they were, but why would she have gone to get more drugs at the drugstore that day if she had more drugs? You know what I mean? I, I don't mm-hmm. know. It's it's really weird. It seems the murder seems extra elaborate mm-hmm. to have been committed on such a sort of off the cuff kind of way. You know, knew she had drugs and went to get him and killed her. Like, okay. But Lay and wait for her inside her house. Torture her. Yeah. Yeah. That's there is a there is a, a component as 
and there's a million dollar or multi-million dollar inheritance involved. Right. Which to me creates a a level of like mm, there's a poss- there's a part here that's like yeah, I feel I'm with you. I feel like I don't know that there's, you know, like I it seems clear that Jeremy did it. That doesn't seem to be in doubt, but mm-hmm. the full story still still doesn't seem to have emerged. No. Like what was Sabrina and AJ's broader involvement not to mention heather the, heather and the AJ's girl for heather yeah yeah well no i meant um sabrina as well because sabrina is also her child so she will uh, also inherit millions with her well, upon there, her mother's death from the there was sabrina nathan and az yeah those were the three kids and sabrina and nathan were interviewed and az was had a very serious drug problem and had lived with her for a while nathan and sabrina had also both moved away they lived in other areas of uh yeah, the still inherit, so it still yeah. puts them on the hook for it. I'm, I'm, you know, like what a great alibi to be far away because she's the one who started the where is mom, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, like why would she like? Okay, so she tried to call her and wish her a happy Thanksgiving or whatever, and she didn't answer the phone or I don't know, but like that part of the story seems a little sort of hmm, mm-hmm. like why is it that somebody from far away initiated the the search for missing mom? Mm-hmm. There's just I, I, there's too much to the murder itself. I, there's um, too much sermonizing on small town life in the special that I think could have been spent on actual details of the crime. Like Northport is a former railroad town that's now sliding into drug crime, and there's a crystal meth problem as there is in many of these small towns and drugs and whatever. And it was like, yeah, okay, I got it. I I, I want to get back to the details of the crime, but it's called Murder Comes to Town, and that's the that's the theme of the special. I think that um, on the surface, it seemed predictably basic and sad, you know, just sort of like money. But this is what cops tell you if you interview cops that like most of the murders that we cover are love, money or drugs, usually a combination of all three. Finance or romance. Anyway. Bless you. Happy Um, fucking Thanksgiving, Eric Shaw. Yeah. And, you know, like you raise your kids in a school bus. Things get ugly mm-hmm. in the long run. I there's the children like to have seen, to have waited to believe that the abuse took place with once the you know she was he was living in the house with her with a drug problem, sort of overlooks the abuse that the children took from having been raised in that kind of haphazard and careless sort of manner living on school buses when they didn't have to. I mean, there are plenty of people who live in depressed circumstances, but for her, her to have been a wealthy and privileged person subjecting those children to mm. life in the school bus and the commune and then turning mm-hmm. into a holy roller, all of those are like, oh dear, that's mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. seems like a pretty, that seems like a culture. It's why I named the other children as well. I mm-hmm. I don't think they're not necessarily a part of paying Jeremy to murder their mother. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was, yes, it was quite the, um, the double stuff Thanksgiving. I'm fall. Mm, yeah. I'll <laughs> the, say the Jesus. horrific, the, the horror show from, um, from Jupiter. And then that sort of tawdry tale of drugs and murder from, from Washington. That's a transcontinental Thanksgiving double stuffed feast. 
Absolutely. And in the weeks ahead, we will be finding ways to not only celebrate the end of the year, but also the arrival of football season, which is something that we're discussing since we're both such big football fans. Right. As I said at the beginning of the episode, we will be bringing you an update on our look at the 30-year-old unsolved homicide of William Arnold Newton, Billy Newton, as he was known to his loved ones. And we first discussed that crime in episodes 37 and 48, if you would like to go back and get a get a, a look at what we're talking about with that it's gone unsolved for 30 years now and the anniversary of the murder was october 29th and we will continue to talk about it in hopes of drawing attention to it and in hopes that someone could advance the investigation uh once again the tip line for that which we've set up is an email address william newton investigation at gmail.com there are two l's in william newton has a t in it even though i don't pronounce it well um at gmail.com that's all I can think, Eric Shaw Quinn. I'm very thankful for you and for this podcast and for the fact that we have been doing this almost a year now. Are we coming up on a year of this? Or am I just completely miscalculating? No, I think you're I think that's absolutely true. We recorded a couple of episodes and then started airing them later. I, I can't we really Maybe should sit it. down and figure that out. I think that's right. It seems like we did a couple of experimental episodes about a year ago and then came back to it Mm -hmm. um, subsequently, but it may have been longer than a year. I don't know. Let's look into that. Meanwhile, yes, the world is so full of a number of things. I'm sure we shall all be as happy as kings. It's Thanksgiving. There's so much to celebrate. So many true crime TV shows to watch. So many podcasts to listen to and so many wonderful party people out there joining us for the celebration. Look out for the Wednesday question this Wednesday. Absolutely. There's no exception. Just because it's Thanksgiving doesn't mean there won't be a Wednesday question. We're always thinking of you and trying to hear back from you and continue to include you in the dinner party here at TDPS. Absolutely. Until next week and forever after, until I am no longer living, I'm Christopher Rice. We'll see. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thank you, and happy Thanksgiving. This is TDPS.